The scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. It can be found on page 906 of the few Bibles in front of you. I will be reading from the King James Version. Luke 2, 39 through 52. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child of Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. And if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. We hope that you can come back and be with us time and time again. Especially this morning, we give honor to our graduates. It's that time of year where a lot of graduations are taking place. And especially today as a congregation, uh, we're going to honor our graduates. And we're proud of you to give honor to whom honor is due is what the scriptures commands for us to do. And we're proud of the accomplishments that you've reached in your life to this point and look forward to seeing all the ways that God will bless you in the future and all the ways that you can be of God's service in the future also. I'd like to challenge you this morning, especially to our graduates, but it's a challenge that all of us should accept. And that is to have the pioneer spirit. You know, when we think about pioneering, so oftentimes we get caught up in the aspect of what the event is that actually takes place. For example, when we think of Charles Lindbergh, it's easy to get caught up into the fact that he was the first to travel from New York to Paris, one way, nonstop. And uh, it's easy to get caught up in that and say, wow, what an accomplishment. But think about for a moment, what is it that drives an individual to accomplish such things? We know one of the things that was a great motivation for him was the Orteg Prize. It was the prize of $10,000. On May 20th, just about, what, 78 years ago or so, do the math, but just a couple of days ago would have been the anniversary. He left a muddy airfield in Long Island, 451 gallons of fuel. He didn't know if he'd make it, but he believed that he could. He believed that he could go somewhere and to do something that no one else has ever done. And he approached that with a lot of research and a lot of effort. And so it is 
It's the pioneer spirit in the lives of individuals that calls individuals to do great things. I want to challenge our graduates today to realize that it's a life that believes that you can go where you've never gone before, where you can accomplish maybe what others have never accomplished before. And if you're willing to invest the faith in that, along with the effort, the energy, the resources, and the backing of all the things that are needed, you too can be a pioneer. You see, the truth is all of us ought to be a pioneer in the sense on our way to heaven. I've never been there, have you? But yet, I want to go there. I believe that it's there. And I believe because of what God has done, His grace can serve as a resource in my life that I can place my efforts in that. And I believe that I can attain that one day by the grace of God if we have that spirit that wants to reach out beyond what we can see on this earth. You see, the reason Charles Lindbergh comes to mind today is because this graduating class had something that took place in their senior year that they probably will be able to tell their grandchildren, yeah, that took place when I was a senior in high school. You see, back in October this past year, there was another prize that was offered based upon the same concept of the prize that had also been offered in aviation. This prize was the Ansari X Prize. And sorry, X Prize. This was a prize not worth $10,000, but this prize was worth $10 million. It was to be given to the first non-governmental aircraft and those behind it that would be able to launch a man along with two seats for passengers. And if the passengers weren't there, they had to be weighted. The aircraft had to be weighted for their existence. They would be launched into space. They would break 62.5 miles, which would carry them into what we call outer space to return to take that same airship back into space within two-week period of time. The idea was the same idea that Charles Lindbergh accepted, and that is, if we could offer a large enough prize, we could advance aviation to a point that it's never been advanced before. And it has worked. As a matter of fact, this particular company that has put Spaceship One into outer space twice within two-week period of time, now you sophomores this year, let me tell you what you need to ask for graduation, 2007. Ask your mom and dad to let you be one of the first to fly Spaceship One into outer space. They're taking reservations right now. The cost is somewhere between two and $300,000. And people are signing up now to go into outer space as a commercial flight. You see, it's coming. It'll be here probably sooner than what many of us believe, and it will probably become much more common than what most of us ever think, just as things have changed in the past 70 years in aviation where it boggles our minds, that same change is coming. But isn't it interesting what sparked it? It was a pioneer spirit. It was holding a motivation, a prize out there. About 100 years ago, it was to say, look what you can do for a $10,000 prize. And now today, it's look what you can do for a $10 million prize. And there's individuals that can think beyond the moment, and they can think beyond where they've ever been to where they want to be and where they've never been. And I beg you today to realize that as we look in Luke, the second chapter, the text that is so capably read, Jesus was growing up. What's the difference in growing and increasing? 
when you look back into the text or you look at this next screen, you see in Luke, the second chapter, you see back in verse 40, it said Jesus grew. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact and the ways that Jesus grew. This here is talking about a child. It's talking about especially a child as he was in his infancy through what we would call his young and elementary years. We see ways that he grew there. And then Luke says, let me tell you about a story that took place in Jesus' life. Let me tell you about when he was 12 years old and he went down to the temple and this would have been considered the most sacred of the feast for those of the Jews and it was the Passover feast. And he traveled along with his parents down there and he would have spent that celebration week of celebrating the Passover and maybe it started coming to his mind. Maybe he realized it previously. Maybe it was here that it really began to gel concretely in his mind. The Passover. I'm going to be that Passover lamb. Whatever, the thoughts would have been amazing to see this 12-year-old boy as his parents and all of their relatives probably traveling in a large group. They would have traveled in large groups to the same regions for company, but also for comfort, but also for safety. And you can imagine after they travel a day, they begin to look around to gather all their children in at night and realize that Jesus isn't there. Mary and Joseph go back and they spend the next day traveling back and they spend the third day hunting for their son. Notice they didn't expect to find him in a temple. He was probably a pretty normal little 12-year-old boy. They didn't expect to find him there sitting, asking such questions. The Scripture says they were amazed. Amazed. But why was Jesus there? His answer to them is what we shall consider in just a moment. But I want you to see at this point to realize this. Verse 52 tells us that Jesus increased and lists the four areas of his life. That word increased is much different than that word that Jesus grew back when he was a child. You see, when he was a young child, much of the growth is natural. But once he left the temple at 12 years old, the growth that took him from 12 years old into adulthood is not a natural growth. It is an increasing that we shall discuss in this lesson. But what I want you to see is it really is a part of what sometimes we could describe as a pioneer spirit. In other words, one that's willing to invest a lot of energy and effort to make something happen. I hope that we have graduates sitting here this morning that want to make something happen in their life. And the greatest important thing that could happen in their life is to build a spiritual life that is pleasing to God. To accomplish more for God's glory than what they ever thought they could accomplish. To move to spiritual heights that they have not reached yet, but they believe that they could be obtained. And to enjoy heaven. And to believe that the population of heaven could be greater because these graduates had a pioneer spirit, a belief in something greater than themselves and more than what they are today. And it doesn't matter if we're 18 or if we're 78 or beyond. That's something all of us ought to invest in today. That belief in something that's far beyond us that we ought to be a part of. Look back, if you will, to Luke, the second chapter, verse 48, and let's think about advancing our faith. It's interesting when you look at the lines that are underlined on your screen there in Luke, the second chapter, beginning of verse 48. Let's notice these two verses again. 
So when they saw him, they were amazed. This is Mary and Joseph coming back. They were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, it's not easy to translate that word business because really what it's saying here is I must be about my father. Some translations said I must be about my father's house or I must be in my father's house. Of course, this translation says my father's business. But the point is, Jesus is answering and saying to them, I must be about God, about my father. There's no greater work than you and I can be involved in is to make sure that our life is about God. Our relationship with God isn't just coming here on Sunday. Our relationship to God is not, well, I was a part of a youth group. Our relationship to God is not just, well, I'm religious. Notice that this young boy, 12 years old, is stating, I want my life to be about my father's business. We've been studying on Sunday nights uh, the book of Colossians. And Paul said, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. You see, to Paul, a relationship with God is not just a religion. It's not just something we do from time to time throughout the week. A relationship with God is all about our life. It's all about who we are and whom we want to become. And so he's able to look at his parents at 12 years of age and say, don't you understand? I must be about my father's business. But now let's attach this to this next uh, sub-point here. Notice again the words that are underlined. What did she say? Mary said, son. Now before in this same reading, Jesus has been called a child. He's been called the boy Jesus. You see, none of these give reference to whom his parents might be. But you see, this one, he is being addressed here as Mary's offspring. Well, that's natural. We do that with our children, and children have heard their parents do that as they call them, son, do this, or son, come here. And if you were out in a public place, people wouldn't have to know your family to know that there is a mother and a son or a father and a son. And so here, it's interesting that she would just naturally, of course, address him as son. But then we know that his biological father was not Joseph, but this gives us insight to what his growing up must have been like, that he was a father-type figure in probably almost every sense of the word, Joseph to Jesus. But you see, Jesus is about to make a powerful point here. He says, don't you know that your father and I, we've been searching all over for you. You notice his answer? As he says, why do you, you're, you're the one that's just called me son. Why do you seek me? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? You just said I was Joseph's son. Let me tell you about a greater work that I must be a part of. It's not earthly. It's heavenly. 
somewhere in those years of 12 and 13 and 14 years old, and if it hasn't happened then, whenever the person comes to realize that, whether it's 18 or 58 or 78 or 98, we have to move beyond the fact that if we were blessed with godly parents that raised us in the right way, we have to move beyond trying to coattail on their faith. We have to move beyond having a secondary faith. And I believe that there's some that have never been able to do that. They've never been able to make that transition of having good parents that have led them in the way of righteousness to finally one day saying, I do what I do. I am who I am because of my God, not because of my parents. I remember one time teaching this same topic to a Wednesday night Bible class of teenagers. The topic was making the plea for each to have their own faith and to not hide behind their parents' faith, to be willing to have their own convictions and to believe that something is right or wrong, not simply because your parents said it was right or wrong, but having conviction to do what's right because of whom you're God. Your God is the Almighty God in heaven. Let me come back to that illustration and, and make this quick point. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you from Scripture, it's fine for an eight, nine-year-old to not lie at school because their parents taught them that it's wrong to lie. It's fine for, for a five or six or seven-year-old to not cheat at school because their parents have taught them that it's wrong to cheat. But something is terribly wrong if a 17 or 18-year-old still has that same exact standard of why not to lie or not to cheat. Somewhere in those years between 12 and adulthood ought to be an individual saying, I'm a child of God. I want to spend an eternity with God. My God teaches me it's wrong to lie. My God teaches me it's wrong to steal. And so I was trying to make that point on this Wednesday night. And, and this one young man, he, he really, you could tell by his tone, he was angry. And that had not been the tone at all. It had been just a very casual, uh, just your normal class on Wednesday night. He spoke up with anger and he said, I don't care. My mom and dad told me, and this young man was about 16 at this time, he said, my mom and dad told me that I could hide behind them as an excuse anytime I want to, and I'm going to hide behind them. And I said, what do you mean, hide behind them? And he says, if I'm at a party and they start drinking, my parents said it's fine for me to say, my mom and dad don't allow me to drink. So that's great to have parents that teach you to do what's right. But eventually, you have to have a relationship with God that would urge you to do what is right. And you've got to make that transition where God is a higher authority in your life than your parents. He spoke up a time or two again with anger. And it was interesting watching that young man grow up it's also sad because there hasn't been very many pretty pictures in his life. We have to decide 
Are we going to be about God? We can't go through life being what we ought to be and just hiding behind the faith of a church, hiding behind the faith of parents, hiding behind the faith of a youth minister, hiding behind the faith of, of a teacher. But instead, turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we see a tremendous reading in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 6. Now faith, Hebrews 11 and 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We need, a sub, we need something that is substantial in our life. We need evidence in our life. We need to be able to say no and know why we're saying no. Why do we say no? Because of our faith in God. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Notice, he doesn't say you can either have faith that comes by hearing, hearing from your parents or hearing the Word of God. Eventually, that transition has to be made where we know what we know and we believe what we believe and we practice what we practice because God is God. This doesn't come easy. This isn't something that parents can just hand down to us. This is something that comes with great effort. Look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We have to have faith in the existence of God. We have to have faith in the fact that there's going to be a day of judgment. And on that day of judgment, all will resurrect and they will stand before God and God will reward those that have been found faithful. And God will punish those that have not been found faithful. We have to have faith to believe that. Where does that faith come from? From the word of God. Believing the Word of God. Well, who is found faithful? Those who diligently seek God. Those who diligently seek that faith. We're talking about pioneering here. We're not talking about natural development where you say, well, if I just hang around religious people long enough, I'll have that kind of faith. No. This is something that comes about through great energy and also great commitment. Let's look at the next slide, and we don't have time to develop these, but hopefully just mentioning a few out of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, will make us stop and think. What is it that is faithfulness? Faithfulness is when we have something to our disposal, an opportunity, a challenge in life, and we decide to go through that, remaining with God, coming out of the other side, we've been found faithful. Throughout this audience are individuals that you would describe, you would look at them and say, they are so faithful. What do you mean by that? They're individuals that's gone through long time periods. They're individuals that have gone through very difficult days and they stayed with God and now they're even stronger now. Abel, what did Abel do? He sacrificed. His brother didn't give God what he wanted, but he gave God what God wanted. We look at Enoch. What did Enoch do? He got up every day and he lived life the way God wanted him to live life. He pleased God. We look at Noah. No other family around was living for God. He was willing to live for God when nobody else would live for God. That is an amazing demonstration of faith. Sarah judged God's promises to be faithful. She was far beyond the childbearing years, but yet God said she would bear a child, and she believed God's promises. We look at Abraham, and those of you young people, you can't really appreciate this the most until you have your own child. But the idea of Abraham taking that child and laying that child on the altar and raising the knife and being willing to give his son simply because God asked. Faith. You could go up to Abraham with a raised knife and say, do you really think doing God's will is best? Yes. 
Even right now, with a knife over your son? Yes. That's what faithfulness is all about. It's staying with God. It's making God our life. We look at Moses. He chose God over all the riches of Pharaoh's palace. And we look at Joshua who marched the people around the wall of Jericho. How could that make any sense? March people around a wall to defeat a city, but yet he trusted God. He had faith in God, and the wall fell. But for the last portion of this lesson, let's go back now, and let's think not only about advancing our faith, but notice this second point. Look in Luke, the second chapter. So we see that as Jesus there has made it very clear at 12 years of age, I'm about something that's more important than just my parents. I'm about a relationship with God that I want to be a part of the Father's business. And then he goes home. And we read in verse 51 that he still went home to submit to his parents, which is a powerful lesson that we still need to come back and address at some time. Because if Jesus submitted to parents, that is the greatest example of submission because that was the perfect individual that submitted to imperfect parents. Some of you kids may feel that way. And verse 52, notice how Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now this is powerful. This is what gives this whole lesson that we're studying this morning the idea of pioneering. The word increase right here is from the Greek word that actually means to drive by force. It is the idea of pioneering. It's the idea of cutting down trees to drive an army, to advance an army forward. Thayer would actually say it's the idea of, of a metalsmith taking a piece of metal and banging, hammering that metal out. So if it's a 12-inch piece of metal, when he's finished working on it, it's actually become a 24-inch piece of metal. Someone says, wow, how did that happen? That increase was given through tremendous effort. There's no accident in the fact that when Jesus was a baby moving out of Egypt and going to Nazareth, Luke said the child grew. But when Jesus was 12 years old and he had openly stated the fact that he's about his father's business, the description from 12 years old to his adulthood is not the word grow. It's the word increase, which means by great effort. Every way in which Jesus grew, Jesus grew because it was tremendous effort. I would challenge our graduates today. Don't ever look for the easy way through life because it doesn't offer increase. Don't ever become of an attitude where everything has to be about a shortcut because that doesn't produce genuine growth. We are so accustomed in our society to conveniences that if we're not careful, we allow that attitude to spill over into our spirituality. And all of a sudden, we want quick growth, quick fixes. We want easy cost, easy life. It doesn't work. Let's come back this evening and finish this lesson. But as we close, I want us to look quickly at 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 
Paul, how would you describe the effort, this increase, this increase that comes through great effort? How would you describe this? Let's read four verses here. First, he would say in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter and verse 24, run as if only one wins. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, we know that in heaven there's not only going to be one person, but it's interesting. Paul says, I want you to run as if there's only one. Wait, wait, Paul, Paul. You're supposed to be saying, figure out a way to make Christianity easy. And Paul says, oh, no. This is worth our all. You run hard for that prize. Second, Let's read about the struggle of self-control here. Verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. That's self-control in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. In other words, they had an evergreen wreath that they were competing for on earth. But we for an imperishable crown. The Christian athlete, in other words, the one that is running for heaven, we have a crown, we have a reward that's so much greater. It's not a 10000 or a $10 million reward. It's heaven. It's an imperishable crown. And so he uses the word here when he says, let everyone who competes, it's the, the word is for struggle. The other times that this is used in the scriptures is usually translated fight. It's the idea of wrestlers that would be competing and it would take every ounce of their being to struggle in order to win the event. And so here he says, I want you to struggle, but I want you to struggle keeping yourself under control. It's so important that we control our life, to place ourselves under God's control in every area of life. Three, let's focus as we read verse 26 as if productivity really matters. 1 Corinthians 9 and 26, Therefore I run, thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. We see one athlete, he's running. He has his eyes focused on the end, and he's running hard. We see another athlete that he kind of stutter steps, he stops and talks with somebody over here, he runs, he looks back, he takes a few steps back. Can you imagine a race like that? Somebody said, I can't imagine a race like that. You know what's happening in the Christian faith real often? Lord's saying, I want you to run, and I want you to know where you're running, and I want you to not look back. And how many times we found ourselves stopping. And the Lord says, it really does matter, the effort. And then finally, the sacrifice is mentioned in 27. But I discipline my body, and I bring it in subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I should become disqualified. Here where he says, I discipline myself, is an athletic term, that literally in its root means to blacken the eye. That's why in the King James it says, I buffet my body. The idea is I'm willing to take the punches so that I can place myself in submission to God's will. In other words, I will sacrifice body for the cause of Christ because I don't want to go out and herald the rules out to other contestants and I myself be disqualified. You see, all of these four verses are written, even in the original language, in athletic terms. So what's the point? Paul is urging us to realize it's all about giving our best. It's all about giving our all. It's all about the focus, and it's all about being willing to sacrifice. Sounds a lot like the pioneer spirit. One day we'll all together again. Everybody that's in this room will be at the same place again one day. It'll be that great and final day of judgment. 
we will reach somewhere that we have never gone before. God offers His Son so that we can attain heights that have never been reached. Far beyond 62.5 miles. Far beyond our imagination. This morning, I urge you, if your life isn't right with God, won't you step out? Step higher than you've ever stepped. Place yourself where you need to be. God's done His part, and He'll continue to do His part, and let's make sure that we do ours. You need to be baptized into Christ. We'd love to do that this morning. If you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.